Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs, also known as Titterpigs, from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm utterly and completely surrounded by my stuff. Here on my right is my ever-growing great library of RPGs and my grognard files. There's 49 of them, almost hitting a landmark number. Six years on from when we started, and this is the 80th podcast that we've produced. I know, I can't believe it either. Here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll, uh, I'll just give it a tap. Ah yes, she has appeared as the roving journalist from the Adam and the Ant video, Goody Two Shoes. Writing is in the air. We've even had a new review on that iTunes that no one uses anymore. This time from Mikey, the Demon Samurai. It's taken me seven months to get round to leaving this review, ever since stumbling across the podcast in the winter of 2020. And what a delight it's been. First, I browsed back and forward through the episodes in a similar manner that one might browse through a copy of White Dwarf. First, devouring my favourite games from the past and later flicking through the other episodes and discovering hidden gems of games I've never heard of. I really like Dirk's relaxed interview style. He gives his guests plenty of room to speak, never makes a show about himself. And the banter with the erudite rules lawyer, Dush Blythe, is of course one of the highlights and never fails to bring a smile to my face on my morning dog walk. The podcast has done so much to create an affectionate, supporting community around RPGs and really should be applauded. Thank you so much, Dirk and Blythe, for brightening up these difficult COVID days. Thanks, Mikey. Reviews really do count towards giving us a lift and making all those cack-handed algorithms make sense of what the grog pod is really about. Thanks. At the time of recording, many of the listeners have been participating in Write Your First Adventure, an online course provided by the Storytelling Collective. There were three strands to follow, a Dungeons and Dragons route, a generic course and one specially for Call of Cthulhu with contributions from our friend Paul Fricker. I tried my hand at the generic route, but found it difficult to keep up the pace, as the idea is to write and produce an adventure ready for publication on one of the download stores within a month. Writing an adventure so that other people can play it is really difficult, more difficult than it looks. You have to be part dramatist, part cartographer, part recipe maker, part statistician and part film director. We dedicate this episode of the Grog Pod to the master of the art of scenario writing from back in the day, a staple of the golden age of White Dwarf, 
Marcus L. Rowland. The L stands for legend. At Daily Dwarf, the armchair adventurer from Twitter has written a retrospective of Marcus's contributions to White Dwarf in an essay that I'll read. I was fortunate to interview the man himself, still bristling with ideas and humble about his role in inspiring hundreds of aspiring scenario writers to do better, think of the spectacular and emphasise the play in RPGs. Also, we have a first, last in everything from Sam Vale, a playtester extraordinaire, about the first game he played, the last game he played, and the game that means everything to him. I'm joined in the room of role-playing rambling by the resident rules lawyer, Judge Blythe, in a Thunder Phase segment where we answer listener questions. I'll be back at the end to say goodbye, and until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. White Dwarf! If you go back and listen to old grog pods, or better yet, go back and read your copies of The Collected Daily Dwarf, you do that regularly, don't you? Don't you? You can't fail to notice one name featuring over and over again. Marcus L. Rowland. Over a seven-year period, in the pages of White Dwarf, Marcus clocked up 19 scenarios and 26 articles across nine different role-playing games. Truly a man for all systems. And that's not to mention the 35 reviews he wrote for Open Box. He even contributed to the Microview column, submitting several traveller programmes for sector and vehicle design, as well as a character generator for the mighty ZX81. Yes, younger listeners might not remember, but for a while, White Dwarf indulged in that peculiar 1980s fad of Hunt the Typo, where, after typing in a code listing from a magazine, you then spent several enjoyable hours trying to find the mistake you'd made that was preventing the programme from running. But I digress. Back to White Dwarf's Renaissance Man. As I've said, I've looked at a number of Marcus Rowland scenarios and articles individually before in the pod, so rather than go over old ground and risk repeating myself, I thought I'd look at his output in the magazine as a whole to try and see if there were any common, reoccurring themes in his work. Turns out, I think there were several that spanned both systems and genres, illustrating his remarkable versatility. Let's dig in. Elementary, my dear Marcus. It's a commonly held belief that the release of Call of Cthulhu RPG in 1981 marked a step away from the simple hack and slash of Dungeons and Dragons towards a more investigative style of play, where the players had to piece together clues to uncover the mystery central to the scenario. Well, that may be true, but certain people were ahead of the curve. Marcus Rowland among them. From the outset, his features in White Dwarf always had an emphasis on investigation. His very first article was The Detective, a character class for AD&D, a mix of thief and cleric, with access to spells dealing with detection and escapology. 
There were many clever role-playing ideas here. Detectives had to set up an HQ at 8th level, establishing a presence in the city in order to advertise their services. Solving crime, while lucrative, could then bring them into conflict with local thieves and assassins' guilds, not to mention other agencies. Only room for one great detective in any city. The article was topped off with an illustration of an elvish figure with a Bob Ross afro, sitting on a giant mushroom, thinking hard. Marcus developed these ideas into the scenario Eagle Hunt, with the PCs seconded into a detective agency, having to infiltrate an assassin's guild in order to recover a stolen artefact. The emphasis on a softly, softly approach rather than a all-out attack made for a refreshing change for an AD&D scenario at the time. Whatever the game, investigation was always a key element. In his superhero adventure for champions, Strike Back, the team of heroes had to foil a dastardly plot to destroy humanity, involving several nefarious organisations, while his scenario for Star Trek, Starfall, required the away team, in among some phaser tooting action, to undercover the clandestine operations of the Klingon agents. But it was with the arrival of Call of Cthulhu that Marcus Rowland found his natural home, the game being a perfect fit for his style. He wrote the first White Dwarf article for the game, Cthulhu Now, taking Cthulhu out of the cosy world of the 1920s and into the dynamic modern world of the 1980s, featuring Fortran programming, databases like CFAX and Prestel, and of course homemade thermonuclear weapons. Investigation remained paramount as the Mythos forces exerted their malign influence behind the scenes, avoiding open confrontation. This was evident in all the Call of Cthulhu adventures he subsequently wrote for the magazine, including Curse of the Bone, officially the favourite white dwarf scenario of the Grogerati, and latterly the Dread RPG also suited his talent, blending detection in with plenty of comic book action. Just because he had a predilection for investigation, though, it wasn't just the careful, painstaking piecing together of subtle clues. Marcus Rowland also had a taste for adventure on a grand scale. Go big or go home. Marcus Rowland was clearly a fan of an epic setting, major villains and a grand finale. Back at the beginning of the 1980s, while the rest of us were grubbing on about dungeons, he took AD&D into space. The articles, The Dungeon Master's Guide to the Galaxy and The Dungeon at the End of the Universe, looked at space travel and combat respectively. And these ideas were then used in his War of the Worlds inspired adventure, Operation Counter-Strike. Marcus being Marcus, he didn't stop there though, and threw in some Cthulhu cultists into the mix, for good measure. Be warned, if you attempted to read this scenario though, it's an all caps 
tiny font and it makes it a challenge for the hardiest grognard. The grand designs continued. No mere run-of-the-mill supervillains for Marcus Rowland. Oh, no. In Strike Back, the superheroes had to take on Count Dracula, Baron Frankenstein, Captain Nemo and the Bavarian Illuminati while stalking the halls of Schloss, Frankenstein and the cramped confines of the Nautilus. Admittedly, they did get a bit of help from Sherlock Holmes and Sigmund Freud. All this required the heroes to be transported back to the 19th century, but more about time travel in a bit. Future heists were a staple of traveller adventures, but in Tower Trouble, Marcus provided a striking setting. 100,000 kilometres up in the sky above the surface of terror as the PCs carried out a daring raid on the Arthur C. Clarke-style orbital tower. It all went to make an otherwise routine scenario into something truly memorable. And nothing was more in the grand scale than Marcus's final feature in White Dwarf, his Judge Dread adventure. To live and die in Mega City 1. This was a valentine to all the epic stories in the 2000 AD strip, featuring block wars, rebellious robots, a mission to cursed earth, and, as with his Games Workshop scenario, Judgment Day, a return of a major villain from the Dread Strip. Hugely, hugely enjoyable. This was scenario design by way of Simpson and Bruckenheimer. Amid all this crash-bang, high-octane adventure, though, Marcus always found room for... Fundamental humour. Running through all the investigation and big set pieces, Marcus Rowland wove a thread of deadpan, tongue-in-cheek humour, particularly appealing, I think, to the British sensibility, a groan-inducing puns, a speciality. He never had to force the humour into his RPG scenarios. Oftentimes it was just a throwaway lines that made you laugh. In the Traveller scenario, Green Horizon, Earth is declared a cultural quarantine zone by way of an alien survey. While in the Champion's Adventure, Slayground, superhero groupies could be treated as convenient projectiles for supervillains. Some RPGs gave Marcus's humour free reign. For Paranoia, he gave us a mashup of The Prisoner with The Little House on the Prairie. In the scenario, Do Troubleshooters Dream of Electric Sheep? And Mexican Daleks in Little Lost Warbot. The Judge Dread RPG also provided fertile ground. The strip has always blended the acerbic humour into the action. Marcus's features for the game also perfected this balance. His riffing on the film titles was good fun, with adventures The Sprung Ones and To Live and Die in Mega City 1. I doubt many scenario writers take inspiration from both Cliff Richard and William Freakin. The adventures were peppered with knowing cultural references. Tresco Megamart, a Sinclair C5 in an antiques dealer, the wonderfully named Bobby Blotch Block, 
and Marcus had a talent for thinking up dread-style names like Edmund Crunge, Snit Zippo and Davros O'Rooney. But what of Call of Cthulhu? Surely there was no humour to be found in the cosmic horror of a pitiless universe. Even here, Marcus Rowland managed some comic touches. I think he gave us a knowing wink in Curse of the Bone when he had a cannibal cultist making his way in London as a used car salesman. More obvious humour was on show in his guide to British slang in green and pleasant language, particularly with Mummerset, his regional dialect mishmash, which included such choice translations as Ah, it be warm weather. I'd like you to buy me a drink. I be deaf. I am deaf and or senile, but won't admit it. There's trouble at mill. The keeper is trying for a cheap laugh. And of course, Marcus gave us what many grognards regard as the finest pun in RPG history. While it became a Games Workshop scenario, it originated as an adventure outline in White Dwarf 43. Who can forget Trail of the Loathsome Slime? There's just one more theme we have to return to. Wibbly, wobbly, timey, wimey stuff. One thing is clear. Marcus Rowland was and still is, a frustrated Time Lord. And not just because of all the Dalek references. Time travel featured over and over again in his articles and scenarios for White Dwarf, way back in issue 29 in his article, This is, of course, impossible. He presented his time travel manifesto, setting out the concepts and the ideas that would be used in later adventures alternate timelines, paradoxes, killing your own grandfather, headaches for the GM, it was all there. Several subsequent scenarios featured time travel, while Eagle Hunt was mainly a city-based investigative adventure for AD&D. Marcus couldn't resist sprinkling in some time travel sugar at the finale. His high-concept traveller scenario... Green Horizon started with a jump drive blow, sending out a starship back to the 20th century Earth. The crew of space marsupials had to try and sneak some fuel past the soldiers in Nazi-occupied Norway of 1943. And, as previously mentioned, the champion's adventure, Strike Back, had a superhero team transported back to 1899, by way of an organic computer from the future, in the form of a four-foot-tall cartoon mouse called Benji. How the team fitted into the Victorian society while dressed in spandex was left as an exercise for the players. At the end of the Marcus Rowland era of White Dwarf, he returned once more to time travel with Judge Dread RPG. In the article, The Trouble with Time, he examined time paradoxes which rarely, if ever, ended well in the Dreadverse and how the precognition of the side division actually ended up causing the events that were predicted to happen. It was then fitting that in his White Dwarf Swan Song, To Live and Die in Megacity 1, 
time travel featured predominantly with the team encountering a judge from the future, having to avoid potential paradoxes and facing the threat of a villain capable of moving through the time streams. That final adventure really was quintessential Marcus L. Rowland, epic in scale, featuring an investigation through some memorable locations, mind-bending time travel implications, and all shot through with his characteristic sense of humour. And his final sign-off? Give blood, not excuses. A sentiment with which I wholeheartedly agree. What a guy. White Dwarf simply wouldn't have been the same without him. Marcus L. Rowland. L for legend. Indeed. Open box. Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forward. Our gaming of the past has informed how we game today. And I'm very excited to be joined in the Zoom of role-playing rambling by a prolific contributor to the heyday of White Dwarf magazine, the designer of Forgotten Futures RPG, Marcus L. Rowland. Hello, Marcus. Hi. What we, what we normally start with is our opening question is, how did you get into gaming? And in particular, can you remember your first role-playing game experience? About 1970, went to my first science fiction convention. I was in the bar, and <laughs> I, I saw this group of people. One of them was describing going through a room, and there were, there were invisible somethings trying to crush them. It wasn't actually a, a, a role-playing game as such, a sort of proto-role-playing game. It wasn't actually in the role-playing community as such, but he was uh, trying to do a sort of more free-form thing. It's off his head, describe the problem, how, how do you deal with it, etc., etc. That convention was in November, and about a month later was the annual uh, model builders thing, which was at the, t- at the time was at Seymour Hall, which was quite near where I was working. Now, because this is all new, and there were rule books and stuff, and I ended up buying the big blue book, Dungeons and Dragons. It was the thing, the thing they did after they did the free book edition thing and started getting the figures and st- bought little model spaceships because I was interested in SF and so forth. And it sort of snowballed from there. Eventually, I started looking for people to play the games with. Various people I met at conventions pointed me in the direction. It was a community centre in Camden where they were doing a, a weekly games thing. I went along to that, and I was about twice the age of anyone else there. But uh, got into into the hobby there, and there was there were mostly D and D, some RuneQuest, and so forth. I thought, hey, I could write some of this stuff. Um, at the time, I was in a job where where the pay was rotten, but the uh, the hours were pretty good. So I thought, let's do something in my spare time that earn a bit of extra cash. So I did a, a character class for White Dwarf called The Detective. I did actually look this up the other day. White Dwarf 24. I get the impression that they were getting a lot of submissions that weren't very good, shall we say. And I'd actually typed it. It made a big difference. It made a big difference at the time, apparently. Much later, I visited a workshop in Kilburn. They were still getting stuff from handwritten in biro, <laughs> coloured biro. As I say, I was typing with stuff. Uh, later on, I started word processing it. Uh, I mean, it may sound stupid, but I suspect I, I, I got published where 
better writers who weren't into the, using the computers and so forth weren't being published. We've had a number of uh, the editors of White Dwarf on and they've all said that you were kind of the mainstay of who they could turn to, uh, produce something really good that could depend on you. I was stupidly prolific. <laughs> I was, you know, I'd see something and think, oh, I can write about that. Oh, um, what can I say about that? Dungeons and Dragons. Let's have Dungeons and Dragons in space. So I, I'd dig, up, dig out every, every weird means of space travel I could think of on shoved it all together in an article and then wrote an adventure that used some of the same stuff. If I'd been writing modules or or, or, or game supplements, I might have earned some real money then. But, you know, if, the only market I knew really was Games Workshop. I sold a lot of stuff to Games Workshop at fairly, fairly low rates. I was working as a technician and I was quite used to working with things like scientific reports. So I could actually put together an article which had a beginning, a middle and an end. This is what you need to do. Here are, here are all the problems, blah, blah, blah. It would sort of hang together reasonably well. Um, you were probably one of the first uh, writers who really got hold of Call of Cthulhu and started doing interesting things with that. What was it about Call of Cthulhu that appealed to you? I liked the idea that people in Call of Cthulhu did not become unkillable uh, warriors who, who would go about slaying gods. In Call of Cthulhu, you power tripping. If you go power tripping, you go insane. And I like that. I like the whole idea that the adventurers were basically people. A lot of the stuff I've done since then, I've gone towards the much more human end of the scale. It makes things easier to write. It makes them more relatable. I think it shows in my writing that when I'm not writing about situations where the referee has to be ready for someone suddenly producing Stormbringer out of his pocket or something. You've got a better handle on what's going to happen. And there's quite a few uh, spot rules that you uh, developed as well, like uh, car chases and uh, the fear of flying was one that uh, particularly struck a chord. Um, Did those kind of ideas emerge from the games you were playing or were they just flights of imagination that you thought, I'll pursue this? Um, it's a both. I think I was playtesting the Surrey Enigma, and at some point they wanted to do a car chase for no readily apparent reason. There weren't really very good rules for it, so I said, right, this is what you have to do. And it worked okay, and so I put it into the adventure. A lot of it was that I would see a gap in, in what was going on. I didn't want to write a rule for every situation because I don't think it's necessary. But where there was something obvious like, how do you do a car chase? Yeah, I'd write it. Our uh, friend and uh, uh, colleague, Daily Dwarf, uh, ran a poll and the winner of the best ever White Dwarf scenario was Curse of the Bone. I'm, su- I'm a bit surprised, but uh, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> well, oh, I've run that uh, several times. What's uh, striking about it, it's a really good investigation that sends you, it potential, has a potential to send you all down different routes. It, it kind of turns the m- mundane into that horrific I can't remember what it, what made me think about writing that one particularly. I was trying to do something that, that was a modern setting rather than rather than nineteen twenties setting. Thought let's not make it a, a huge sprawling adventure. Have something going on in, in the city somewhere. And there was another one I did like that, which never actually I never actually finished for various reasons, where someone was going to inherit uh, the property of an uncle they everybody had forgotten. In the you know you know these these convenient uncles that turn up to pick up stuff which is in a storage locker somewhere. It's odds and ends and this long metal locker, 
And when they open the, the long metal locker, it contains a five foot long boys anti-tank rifle and a, and a large carton of bullets, which appear to be silver and have radiation symbols on them. The idea was that they were going to follow a trail of clues, uh, which would end up with them in the top of Canary Wharf was being used by a great old one. Okay, that was the plan. The reality was that they started wandering around London, toting a five-foot-long boy's anti-tank rifle with them, (laughs) and didn't conceal it very well. This got them in so much trouble that they never got near the damn adventure. I could see that putting this into into an adventure was just asking for problems. <laughs> I had to. I just had to abandon the idea because it was just not working. Meanwhile, uh, Canary Wharf was being torn apart by a great old one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's my own fault. I was, I was just so so in love with the idea of this stupid damn gun. <laughs> you were one of the first to bring Cthulhu into modern day so Cthulhu now appeared in White Dwarf it's, it's just one of those things it's fairly obvious if you've got the damn great old ones and so forth yes they're around in the 1920s but they're not going to go away they're immortal unkillable monsters they're still going to be around today sorry not monsters gods so uh where are they and uh that, that's that was my starting point for all that of the stuff that you wrote for White Dwarf, which are the ones that you're particularly proud of? There was a, a double-page thing on Britain in the 1920s for called Cthulhu, which was uh, it was supposed to be in green and pleasant land, and someone messed up the pa- messed up the collation of the book so that it didn't get included. So they published it separately. Um, uh, was that about the uh, Mummer set? And Mummer uh, set. I've used I've used that idea a few times since then. A few hundred times since then. Let <laughs> me trouble up a bill. <laughs> the tra- uh, there was a traveller one which was about hijacking an orbital, orbital tower, which I was quite pleased. Para- uh, the Paranoia Adventure, Little Lost Warbot, I think. I think the last thing I wrote for them, which, which I, I quite enjoyed, the last thing I think they ever published for Judge Dredd, To Live and Die in Mega City One, big three part adventure. Quite an epic um, one, that one, isn't it? It's- it was as complicated as hell to write because some time, time travel stuff in there. You've got predestination. You've got all, so, all sorts of stuff going on. And the adventurers have to sort of pick their way through it and work it all out. And I was very pleased with it when, I've, when I'd done it. People who've played it seem to enjoy it, so uh, it's always, which is always nice. I mean, it was a real shame that, as I say, that was the last thing I wrote for them. Um, around, around that time... They decided that rather than being a role-playing magazine, they were going to be a, a Games Workshop hobby magazine. The Games Workshop ho- hobby, of course, being Chaos Spiky Bits. They sent me the Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader. And I sat down and looked at it and thought, and eventually wrote half war, war gaming, half role-playing thing. And they took one look at it and said, we can't publish this. We're not going to make figures for it. Ah. So, right, that's your priorities now, is it? Uh, that was, that was, I think, the last time I tried submitting anything to White Dwarf. Um, I did eventually get it published in uh, Challenge. Which is a pity, isn't it? Because um, science fiction is your sphere, really, isn't it? And the contributions that you made around travel are really good. Green Horizon. That, that, that one, I think I ran it two or three times. Once it went well... 
once the players know we're not going to get involved in this prime directive we're not going to we're not going to get involved in any of the anything going on here we'll get we'll sneak in we'll, we'll get what we need we'll get out we're not getting involved and the third time they tried to take over the world <laughs> it was it had a lot of different reactions but uh, I was always surprised when I used to see adverts in Dragon Lords magazine fanzine uh, for your ZX81 programs that you could uh, send off and you would send uh, uh, cassettes of, uh, of various um, applications for uh, role-playing games. And, of course, you, you, they ran the programming um, White Dwarf for constructing character, travel characters. Yeah, it was really badly written. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was very, very badly written. I wasn't a very good programmer at that point. Still, I'm still not a very good programmer. I didn't understand arrays as well as I did later on. Well, well uh, about uh, thirty odd years ago, I diligently typed that into my uh, my, my computer to create traveller characters. It, I, it didn't work. I got a syntax error. I had to. I gave up on it eventually, because of course I could never have been able to print them off anyway because I didn't have a thermal uh, printer thing that you needed. So. <laughs> It was uh, not very practical, I'm afraid. I mean, by the by the time I'd written that, that came out, there were better programs around for better on better computers. So, as well as White Dwarf, you actually contributed to Games Workshop's design team, didn't you? As well, so you brought out a couple of uh, modules. Um, mm-hmm. One one that's got the best ever title of any module ever, which is uh, the Trail of the Loathsome Slime. And and, uh, one that we played uh, a couple of years ago, which was fantastic, Queen Victoria and uh, Holy Grail for Golden Heroes. Oh, yeah, that that one wasn't bad. I had fun. I had fun with that. I had a lot of fun with the playtesting on that one. There was a, a moment in it when at one point they have to travel aboard this rickety old plane, fastening their seatbelts. Oh, God, we're going to sit here for 15 hours. And then they start hearing the checklist, and uh, at some point they um, track damper rods. And they, what? <laughs> and uh, ba- basically, they are they are aboard a nuclear powered Douglas DC three Dakota with supersonic capability. You know, it's a superhero. World. What the hell? Uh, being ph- phoned by what by one uh, by one Wing Commander Bigglesworth. And at one point, they, at one point, they have to land for some reason. I can't remember why. And some, suddenly, a horde of people turn up in jeeps and riding camels and so forth. And everybody's looking out, saying, "Oh dear, we're not going to have to start using our powers on anything." Uh, oh, it's all right. That's for me. And the pilot sort of climbs out onto the wing and, and, and waves and say, "Beagles!" He's doing the whole Lawrence of Arabia thing, walking along the, the top of the plane. Beagles, beagles. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> you know, totally irrelevant to the actual adventure. It's just that, that I needed a way to transport them, and I thought let's have a bit of fun with it. And and there were some scenarios that didn't get published because Dave Morris has said that thing with Games Workshop is they used to commission work. You would write it, and some of it never saw the light of day. And I think there was a couple of your things, wasn't there, that weren't uh, actually published. The big one was the. Judge Dread in Space scenario. Sorry, not scenario. I wrote the supplement, basically. Yeah. Um, it had uh, spaceship construction rules, space station stuff, space hab stuff, because, of course, 
in the Judge Dredd universe, there's people living in in giant space stations, which are basically apartment blocks in space. And there was uh, a full deck plans for Justice Two or One, sorry, Justice One, the big the big spaceship. And there was uh, a long adventure, and basically they commissioned it. It took a very long time sitting on it, and they, then they said. We, we don't know when we're going to publish it. We're not sure if we're going to be able to publish it. Would you accept a, a, a fee for what for, for the work so far and so forth? Mm. And uh, I said, it wasn't too bad a fee, so I said, yeah. Mm. And uh, um, that's basically the end of that. Um, a while later, I sold I, I sold sold the uh, the whole thing off in the, in the charity auction. Oh, really? So, yeah. yeah uh, someone somewhere has got the thing. Uh, it's about it was an A, a large A4 file, quite thick. Uh, we'll cut with a big fold-out sheet for Justice One. Um, unfortunately, that w- that was when I was still using, uh, I think, five and a quarter inch floppy disks. God, God alone knows what happened to the files. Probably. Well, I, I mean, I know they're long since gone. I've gone through about eight computers since then, apart from anything else. <laughs> so it's a shame. It's a, quite a lot of work. I've used bits of it in, in other things. Basically, my memory of what, what what was in it. There's a few bits of it turn up in uh, Canal Priests of Mars. So it wasn't quite completely wasted, and it taught me it taught me quite a lot about writing big adventures. I think because. Uh, I actually wrote uh, the the judging in space thing before I did to live and die in Mega City One, and I don't think I could have written that if I hadn't had the experience of writing uh, the judges in space thing. So it wasn't wasted mm. in that sense. It made me a better writer. And one of the one of the things it definitely made me realise was I needed a word I needed a word processor because at that point I, at that point I was still typing things by hand. Mm. Corrections were a total sod. Well, it's been really uh, great sharing your stories, uh, Marcus, and uh, it's been a real uh, privilege uh, for me to spend some time with you. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me on. Thunderface! Welcome to the Zoom of Roleplaying Rambling. This episode marks 80 podcasts, 80 podcasts that we produced in our strange numbering system, it means that it's episode 49. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. We've been doing these online, haven't we, for uh, 18 months. It could be that the next one we do, we actually see each other face-to-face. We could. We could see each other face-to-face, yeah. I have to warn you that since you last saw me, was it 17 months ago, there's more to me than there was when you last saw me. <laughs> Someone cast an enlarged spell on you. It won't go away. I think we're all in that position, aren't we? Well, if you put me in the proximity of cheese, bread and beer, recipe for disaster. It's true that, yeah. Yeah, working from home. They, they don't have... Well, you can have cheese and bread at work, but you certainly can't have beer. When I, 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 have, I have increased in size. I've probably got a damage bonus, right? D4 or D6? Hopefully D4. Not, not a, don't tell me it's D6. <laughs> <laughs> So before we go into Thunder Phase, uh, where uh, patrons and listeners have actually given us some questions to go through, and I've got uh, one of those little games, you know, those Stackwoody games, or the Prefab Sprite game, where I'm going to give you some names, and you're going to decide whether they're one thing or another. Are you ready? As I'll ever be. Come on. We've had uh, Marcus Rowland on, and 
what we didn't mention, we didn't talk about, he actually brought out a role-playing game in the beginning of the noughties, which was based on Zena, Warrior Princess. Zena? What, what's your, what was she called? Zena. Zena. Sorry. Zena, Warrior Princess. Woman who, woman who cuts my hair is called Zena. Strange name. I mean, she's too old to be named after Zena, the Warrior Princess. Zena, the Warrior Hairdresser. But there you go. What's she cut your hair with? With a, with a broadsword, as you could probably tell. <laughs> be careful oh. with that broadsword. <laughs> she's got a damage bonus. Are we in trouble? <laughs> and it's called Diana, Warrior Princess. And it's a parody where Princess Diana is the role of an Amazonian princess. The whole thing of it is to emulate a TV programme. The nemesis of Diana is, of course, Thatcher, the uh, sorceress. This, <laughs> you made this up? No, no. This is... This oh, right, OK. This is Marcus Rowland. I would have yeah. thought it'd be Sarah, Sarah Ferguson. Be the no, no, Ferg. Not Fergie. Fergie's in there. Fergie's in there. Yeah, sidekick. Sidekick. Diana's sidekick. Yeah. yeah, I get it. I get it now. It's making sense now. A country girl of good but vaguely defined background. Oh, ouch! Yeah, and there's a there's Wild Bill Gates, who's a riverboat gambler. <laughs> Bonnie Prince Charlie, ex-husband. He's not a bad person, but he's easily led. That's his. Led by the ear and things. Is he? Led by the ear. Yeah. So Thatcher the sorceress, the undead chancellor of evil is Queen Elizabeth's Chancellor and Advisor, and she plots to seize her throne. What she does, she has to squeeze the taxis from London. And uh, she's got a, a, a sidekick, Archer. I, I assume that it's Geoffrey Archer, the assassin. <laughs> I was thinking that's ridiculous, but no, Geoffrey Archer as a, as a villain. Yeah, I can't buy into it now. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. So the idea of this is that it follows the format of a TV programme. It's very loosely defined rules, and you can see that it's done with a, a sense of fun. So what I've got is a set of scenarios from Diana Boyer Prince okay. recommended yeah. in the yeah. rule book, or actual British tabloid headlines about any subject. Okay. But any subject. Any subject, yeah. Let me uh, let me let me let me go for one. Are you ready? First one. Okay. Romancing the Scone. Romancing the Scone. Is that a, a title of a scenario for Diana Warrior Princess or is that a headline from a British tabloid? So, um, you can play this at home as well if you want. I am at home. Oh, you mean the people <laughs> listening. Right, sorry. Um, Romancing the Scone. I'm going to say that's a newspaper headline. That's actually a scenario from uh, Diana oh. Warrior Princess. It involves Red Ken. Red Ken is uh, a figure in this, and the Red Sorcerer Ken. Who's, who's Ken in it? Ken Livingstone is he a good guy? A bad guy? Um, I imagine he's a good guy. That's just evil. Ken must be. Yeah. So Red Ken is a barbarian hero. It aims to free <laughs> London from the rule of the Sorcerer's Thatcher, a martial artist, a knife thrower, but he's best with animals. He can ride superbly, and as he has pet lizards, salamanders. Lizards. He'd ride a giant lizard. I can imagine him riding a giant lizard. My little friends tell me there's a stranger in these woods. That's one of his catchphrases. Yep, so romancing the scone involves him. All right, next one. My shy die. My shy die. I'm going to say a newspaper headline. It is a newspaper headline. That's the headline that was used by the Sun when Prince Charles presented 
his bride to be. Oh you know? right, and she looks all sheepish and shy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Uh, Parton, lust for glory. That's got to be a scenario, hasn't it? It, it is a scenario involving <laughs> Dolly Parton, the Amazonian uh, princess with her warriors and cyborg camels. Why Dolly Parton, though? Why not? I mean, it, no, well, yeah, you say why not, as if, oh, yeah. But it, there's a theme, isn't there, to the role-playing game? you got like, Ken Livingstone and Fergie and Prince Ch- Where's Dolly Parton fit into it all? Parental guidance is strongly advised since most episodes feature screens of graphic violence supported by an expanding range of cyber camel core toys, games, computer simulations and novels and a six-part Dolly versus Diana comic miniseries. There you go. And Dolly Parton songs. Yeah. It took a lot of money to look so cheap is one of our lines, isn't it? Right, last one. (laughs) Fergie toe job. Fergie toe job. Oh, that's a newspaper headline, isn't it? Yeah, when that fell. Oh, away. that's a newspaper, yeah. Newspaper headline. You remember that when she has a yeah. toe sucked? It's surreal, isn't it? Life is Did she have a toe sucked or did she suck someone else's? No, I think he good. I think he was doing the toe sucking. Right, oh I see. Oh, I always thought it was the way around, but there you go. I'm, I'm glad I've turned up today. I don't know the difference. <laughs> Um, that's my level of ignorance. I knew the headline, but I wasn't sure whose toes were sucked. Right, enough yeah. of that. Enough of that frivolity. Let's get on to the uh, Thunder Phase question. So the way that this works is that we pull, apparently at random, uh, questions, and uh, we don't know which ones we're going to pull out, and uh, we're going to take it in turns asking each other, and we're going to uh, discuss them, and then it's the next roll of the Thunder Phase. So you need to... Uh, Join in with that. Oh, sorry, do I? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, thunder phase. Thunder phase. It's better if we do it together. I feel like I'm at the one in pantomimes now where they go, come (laughs) on, you can do better than that. Like you wait a little twanky or something. Right, okay, it goes. Go on, do we get all right? Go on. Thunder phase. phase. A bit bit slow off the mark there, sorry. My first question is from Roger Coe. Do you think some modern rule books and campaigns have become far too verbose? I think Eddie, Eddie if Eddie was here, he would agree because he, he does dislike the bloat, as he calls it, doesn't he? Yeah, the bloat, the bloat of, of modern rule books and campaigns. Some are guilty of it. I think it's because people want to buy something substantial, don't they? It's packaged as something significant. Uh, when, particularly yes. with a core rule book, it has to look like something that's worth getting. And the payoff on that is that you get a lot of guff that you don't really need. I suppose it is it is about marketing, isn't it? Both in terms of a big, a big, chunky, beautiful rule book somehow makes the game seem that it's a big, beautiful game in some way. I do prefer this modern thing of standalone games. I like that free league model of, you know, mm. if you get Mutineer Zero, you can get Genlab Alpha, it's a standalone game. You can get Elysium. It's a standalone game. I agree. I find that I find that a bit frustrating when you buy a game and then think, ah, I'm going to need this and this and this in order to really feel that I can play it. And it starts to work out very expensive. And I know what you mean. The free league game's good because you buy the game and you feel you've got the whole game. 
things from the, the Tales from the Loop and things from the Flood is like that, isn't it? That you can buy one or the other, and it's a standalone. It, it works. I mean, you could you could say, well, the rules are repeated, so there's an argument for having core rules and then extras. But it is nice to feel you, you buy you can buy one or other game and get the whole thing. I suppose that's not the same as them being verbose, really, is it? I suppose that's slightly different. Um, yeah, I think. I- I think it's what you want from a game, isn't it? It's whether you want to get something that you can imagine in play. So mm. for, for me, because I am somebody, I buy these games to play them. And all the time, what I'm looking for is, right, what's me in here? What, how do I get in? And I think that's why I usually start at the monster list and the um, the scenarios that are in the back. So if it's not got a scenario... I feel a bit confused um, <laughs> yeah. about you know what what's expected. I, I do play this. That's the first place uh, where I go, and I think there's a, a line to be struck. It seems an attractive proposition to say, right, I'm going to strip out all of this, and all we're just going to concentrate on the mechanical aspects of what makes this game work. And yeah. there are some that do that, aren't there? There are some that do that, and I think, for example, Blades in the Dark has a good balance of being instructional and yet inspiring in saying this is the world, etc. Yeah. But I still found it difficult to get my head drained, even though it's well written, well presented and well balanced. I still needed something to say, right, Dirk, this is how you do it. And maybe it's just the way my brain works. There's always that bit missing in a, in a robot. I'm looking for the bit that says, right, this is what you need to do. And the way that you yeah. try and compensate for that very often is doing an example of play, but I can never read them. I just find them so irritating. <laughs> I'm the God you've said that. So do I find them irritating as well. Somewhere they're off putting out the examples of play when they want to go on for pages sometimes. It's really frustrating. You know, never, never really, thing, never really quite explains it. I think the purpose of them is to explain it, but they rarely do. You still have to start going back to the rules to ex- understand the example of play after that. But yeah, I agree with you. I think there is there is a balance, isn't there? Where if a game is just bare bones, you do sometimes look at it and think, okay, you've given me the mechanics, but what I really need is is something to wrap the mechanics around and give me an idea of what style of game it is and that kind of thing. But equally, there's the other extreme where you do get word upon word upon word, pages and pages of words. But then again, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? There is some pleasure in reading a rule book. And maybe those really long-winded rule books are for people who enjoy reading the rule book. Reading the rule book itself is part of the pleasure of of a role-playing game. I mean, you hear of people who buy rule books and enjoy reading them, but never very rarely get to play the game. But part of the fun fun and the thrill of receiving the game and buying it is to read the rules. I mean, again, we we are now officially Free League fanboys, aren't we? But the Free League games do a really good job of that in that they're they're not over the top in the number of words in the book, but they do give you that nice balance of introducing the, the game and the style of game and the world the game's set in, but equally leaving it reasonably loose. Whereas some games just just go on and on and on. Yeah, Yeah. and it's not and it's not necessarily bad games because I think two D twenty Conan is guilty of this. If you want to use the word verbose, that's a verbose robot. But it's a fun game and we enjoy playing it. I have writers for role playing games fully got to grips with how to impart the instructions and the other stuff that's required 
around it. But that's the th- that's the trick, isn't it, to kind of explain the game? I mean, we earlier this year we played some Vaison, and Vaison is almost like a game that shouldn't really work. Scandinavian, Victorian, Gothic horror. You think, mm, okay, that's a, maybe a bit of a hard sell. But they do a really good job of explaining the game to you, what it's about. It's quite specific. You are in your castle. You've got special, you've got the site. You can see these supernatural beings. It's Victorian times. So there's this tension between industry versus rural settings. And these these creatures feel threatened and that kind of thing. And it sets it up brilliantly. There's not too much detail, but there's enough detail to explain the game to the point where it has paragraphs that say this is a very indistinct Victorian era. Don't worry too much if the revolver hasn't been invented for another 10 years. In your game, it's been invented. Don't worry. If you want a typewriter in your game, don't worry that the typewriter was invented in 18-whatever. You can put one in. You know about Victorian times. Just play around with it. Don't worry about the history too much and go with it. And it works brilliantly. It's a really good example of that that sweet spot, I think, of the two. moving, Moving away from the list... Shall we yeah. go for another one? Are you ready? Thunder, Thunder phase. If you had to, this is from Adam Buxton, this one. If you had to pick from talking like Tom Bombadil or Conan for the rest of your life, which would you pick? Conan. There you go. Conan. Is that it? Well, Conan, yeah, because I'm talk like Tom Bombadil for. I'd like well, to don't, see that. Don't, don't start. So don't, right. don't defend Bombadil. Don't start defending <laughs> Buxton and his questions. Not that Adam Buxton, is it? It's the other one, isn't it? Well, which Conan would you be, though? Would you be the Robert E. Howard Conan? Would you be Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan? Or would you be the TV show Conan? Or the Savage Sword of Conan in the comic books? Which one is... I'd like to think I'd be like the comic book one. If you had to speak like Conan, I suppose you could end up in an awful lot of trouble these days, couldn't you? Not the most respectful character. With Tom Bombadil, people would just think you're a simpleton. You know that I'm a bit revisionist with uh, Tom Bombadil. I have changed my mind about Tom Bombadil. I've got, what, another, at best, at the long shot, I've got, what, another 27 years on the planet. I think it's quite an attractive proposition to spend of it, of it calling everybody doll and hit, saying, hey, dolly, dolly, hey. <laughs> and see, I, I quite like it sending like a, a Ned Flanders type character for the rest of my life. I think I'd go for that, because I, I suppose I'm like Conan anyway, like laconic, grumpy, and the only exception is I don't say crom after everything. You don't say by crom. Yeah, people wonder, what do you keep saying that for? <laughs> right, shall we do another one, Adillo? <laughs> Thunderface! Right, this one's from Dr. Mitch. What one RPG do you wish you had played back in the day? but didn't. And there's, a, there's an alternative question to this. What modern RPG do you wish you had had back in the day? It's a two-part question, I suppose, isn't it? Which one Which one do we wish we'd played back in the day but didn't? And which game do we wish we had had back in the day? What's been revealed to me doing the podcast is that there are blind spots, blind spots created by our over-dependence on Games Workshop as the source of the games that we play. There are a whole raft of fantasy games, unlimited games that I wish I played back in the day. I wish I played Bushido. I wish I played uh, Space Opera. I know that people are shouting at the uh, at, at, at the podcast thing <laughs> at the moment, saying, oh, but... At that time, I probably, as we said at length in these podcasts, I probably have the capacity to deal with the 
mental agility required to deal with the permutations of the of, of the rules and with their expectations. I'd have loved to have played Bushido back then and have stories of playing Bushido uh, with you guys. And the other the other um, blind spot we've got is hero games, isn't it? All those uh, champions and those kind of games and Palladium, that, that route of games that we just never followed that path. It was close to us. We turned to um, a different page in the and in the game book, we followed the Games Workshop path every time and we defaulted to it. Yeah, true. We did play Golden Heroes, but we only played it once. And it was, a, as, as has been documented, it was a disaster. Sort of wish we'd played more of Golden Heroes because when we played it years later, we, we had a really good time with it, didn't we? And somewhere we got it into our heads, maybe because of that experience that superhero role-playing wasn't for us and we're now playing a savage world superhero game necessary evil which is the first real superhero adventure we've ever played isn't it long term and i'm really enjoying it great being a superhero it's, it's just a bit different from other games it does add something i wish i'd played golden heroes back in the day more but that maybe that's cheating because i did play it all combined mining said i uh, wish we played champions or villains and vigilantes more yeah, there's blind spots in terms of games and rule sets, and you're right. We we were very much on the, the games workshop railroad of that's you know what we got, and I suppose as well we were restricted by money as well. To be fair, it wasn't necessarily just games workshop. It was it was the fact we didn't have any money. Um, but yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it is superhero role playing. I wish we played it. Not so much because of the systems, but because of the style of play. We never we never did it. But now I'm playing a superhero game. I'm having a great time and I'm thinking, well, why did I not think this was for us? I don't know. It's a great proposition, though, isn't it? Necessary Evil, where because of an alien invasion, all the superheroes <laughs> have been yeah. eliminated. And so the resistance are turning to supervillains. I'm enjoying playing a villain. You enjoy it too much. I think the fact that we are playing super villains, but cast in a world where we have to behave honourably or at least show some altruistic aims. And I think that's what makes it interesting for role-playing because if you're a straightforward good guy, that is not as interesting, is it, to role-play? The second part of the question, what modern RPG do you wish you'd had back in the day? That's an interesting question, isn't it? What we had back then that we haven't got now is that capacity to spend time and just Mm. spend time just getting into something and being expansive, really exploring something. Our role-playing now is taking the format of two-hour bursts online, usually. We're playing a game of Spire at the moment, aren't we? But that is not a gamey game, is it? That is a a setting, really. That requires you to explore it and getting under the skin of it, understand the mechanisms behind the society in which Spire works. And although I'm enjoying doing the births, um, I do think that it would have been great to have a game like that and that setup of being on a mile-high tower block where you're playing Drow who are resisting the uh, Alphia who have uh, come to dominate the place that you live. I just think... To have a bit more time with that um, back in the day 
would have been great. We would have we would have really rolled with an idea like that. I think. Yeah, I think I think you're right. That's the the thing. You, when you're asked that question, your instinct is to think of mechanics and rule sets that that are kind of cool and slick now because the, the some of the mechanics in role play have obviously moved on. But you're right, it's a game that you can immerse yourself in because that's what we did then, isn't it? And we had the time to do that then. Whereas now we don't have the time to do it, which is probably why we like free league games because the free league games are very episodic, aren't they? They work yeah. very well like that. Uh, and where we get a bit frustrated is probably, I mean, a, the best example is, uh, you know, something like 2D20 Coleman back in the day. We'd, we'd have loved it, wouldn't we? Because we would have yeah. the time to get our heads around the, some of the tricky bits of the rules. And we would have immersed, a bit like Spire, we would have immersed ourselves in that world of Conan, wouldn't we? We're kind of fans of Conan, but we were more fans of Conan then, weren't we? We were kind of discovering Conan for the first time. So to play that 2D20 Conan game all day, every day, all weekend, school holidays, to just immerse yourself in it, you're right, that would be fantastic. It's less to do with funky, cool rule, did I wish existed then? Well, yeah, but really it's about the time to immerse yourself. So I'd I'd probably go for the Conan, 2D20 Conan. Hello to all my Grogdard mates. I'm Sam Vale, at SamZeroVale on Twitter. I've gamed with many of you in the past and hope to game with some more of you in the future. Let me recount the saga of my gaming life and the tales of high adventure. I was first introduced to role-playing in 1980, when I was a third year at secondary school. One of my mates said they needed a cleric uh, for some healing, so they wrote me into the advanced Dungeons & Dragons game they had been playing. Uh, My first game. We played it in an English classroom every lunchtime thanks to the pretty liberal uh, and laid-back teacher. I was hooked. I managed to acquire enough birthday money to purchase the player's handbook, and thus, unknown to me at that time, began a lifelong obsession with buying the latest gaming product. Thanks, Satan. When secondary school finished, I moved on to college. My gaming only intensified. The fledgling college intranet was full of traveller character sheets and complicated familial connections for all these characters. It was a sort of based on the family d'Alembert novels of Stephen Golding. Uh, weekends were spent gaming, or at least rolling characters for chivalry and sorcery and aftermath, both of which we played obsessively, although never fully understanding the rules. I got into Tolkien in a big way. Lord of the Rings was an obsessive reread. I liked the country gentleman and his servant approach to a lead character over the things like uh, emaciated, drug-using anti-heroes with demon swords approach. Mostly, I, I suppose, uh, because I was uh, much less interested in Hawkwind and more influenced by Ronnie James Dio's fantasy rock style with rainbows, dragons, kings and queens who blind your eyes and steal your dreams. For some reason, RuneQuest never featured in my gaming life, and to be honest, still doesn't. Consequently, I have no opinion of the game. Maybe I can get into it at some point in the future. Also at this point, 1985 or so, I joined a local village college gaming club where I met Paul Coburn of TSR, Imagine Magazine and White Dwarf Infamy. We got on well and and gamed a lot. That's also where I met Carl Sargent, another gaming luminary, uh, who joined our small club. We were able to playtest some adventures that Carl and Paul were writing. 
uh, which was pretty cool at the time. That's how I acquired the Strontium Dog rule set as Carl was looking over the rules for Games Workshop. I was and still am an obsessive 2008 addict with an encyclopedic knowledge of Strontium Dog that has never proven useful in real life. I still have those rules today and they are my most prized gaming possession along with my official Imagine Magazine binders with a complete run of 1 to 30 plus special edition. Also in those binders are issues 1 to 6 of Paul Coburn's independent gaming magazine stroke module called Games Master Publications. I helped with some of the playtesting for that and uh, some of the maps as well. At that same time, I met the players who were to go on to become my best friends and who I still game with on a weekly basis. We never had a break from gaming. The Deep Freeze, as it's called by many, never arrived in rural Cambridgeshire. We've been gaming together for 36 years and counting, so you would have thought I would have gotten a bit better at it by now. They got me into my first LARP session at Chislehurst Caves. Fun for a bit, but not a long-term pursuit. When Paul moved to Nottingham in order to manage the decline of White Dwarf magazine from a role-playing zine to a wargaming mag, we were able to uh, game with him less often, but still managed weekends away at his house a few times a year, and also gaming more regularly with Carl, who was still a Cambridge local at that time. The late 80s and early 90s, we played all manner of games, too numerous to mention, but I will mention a few favourites. We got massively into Battletech, Rollmaster, West End Games Star Wars, uh, Cyberpunk 2020, and King Arthur Pendragon. In fact, Pendragon would turn out to be my everything game. We played it to death for the box set through every edition up to version 5, which we are currently using. All of the games I've played and GM'd, it's the rules set that I am most familiar with, the easiest for me to create adventures on the fly, and the most satisfying with a great combat system and an easy but comprehensive skill set. I love this game. I've been running a game for Paul Coburn, who is now living in New Zealand, and a couple of my best friends from my regular gaming group. We started with a game based partly on Bernard Cornwell's Warlord series of books, and using the excellent Time of the Wolves from Wordplay Games as a base. The game progressed through a year of roleplay until the lands had been saved from the evil Fae Queen. Sad to be leaving Pendragon, I developed a campaign idea that used Pendragon in a modern setting. I call it Pendragon Agents of Excalibur, a slightly modified homebrewed Pendragon rule set with a couple of extra skills and a few repurposed skills. Set in the Britain of 1963, instead of playing knights, the players take on the role of MI5 agents assigned to Excalibur Branch, a poorly manned section responsible for defending Britain from fey, religious, occult and magic assailants. With Paul getting up at 7am to game with us, this campaign has continued now for two years with no signs of stopping. And it's pretty awesome every time we play, which is why Pendragon is my everything game. But back to the history of my gaming life. From 2003 onwards, my regular group started playtesting for Mongoose Publishing. We started with a Conan RPG, but we playtested play a lot of games. All of the Conan line, OGL supplements, RuneQuest, Wars RPG, Starship Troopers RPG, and many more. It was fun, but hard work, and I think the quality of our gaming suffered due to the high turnover. I did get free books though, so that was okay. We decided to retire from playtesting after a couple of years and then turned to Warhammer Fantasy RPG 2nd Edition. The setting of background fluff is extremely rich and detailed, and the game system was great. Careers and career progression were fun, the chance to roleplay in the old world was amazing. 
Woof Woof's second ed was very nearly my everything game, as we have a lot of fun with the system and still play it a lot in my regular group. So much so that we completely ignored 3rd and 4th edition Warhammer Fantasy RPGs when they came out in favour of the trusted and familiar 2nd Ed. D&D 4th edition arrived around 2005 and we dove deeply into that game, running through some long campaigns. As always, mostly GM'd by me. Other games were bought and played, always striving for that great campaign. We still returned to Warhammer and Pendragon though on a regular basis. Moving into 2015, when I first heard an episode of the Grogdard Files podcast, I think it was episode 3, the Traveller one, I was hooked again like an old lazy drought. I discovered the Grogdard community and then got into Roll20 in December of 2015. That's when my gaming really took off and brought even more joy from this hobby than I could ever have imagined. Since then, I've been gaming pretty continuously, except for a four-month break to deal with a touch of cancer, uh, with an average three games a week, sometimes peaking at six games in a week. Uh, with Grogme and the spin-off Grog10, been able to meet and chat and game with some great people, all of whom I dearly love and whose friendship I truly value. Uh, speaking of Grog10, it's a weekend away in Tempe in January, which I absolutely love, mostly made up of members of the Friday Barbarians of Lemuria group and a couple of other chances. I love you all. You know who you are. The food, chat, drinking and gaming were top-notch. We, of course, had to skip this year, but really look forward to 2022 and deciding on what game to run. Might be another Pendragon or Strontimidor game. I haven't decided yet. As of writing this saga, the last game I played was an online Coriolis game with Martin, Dave, K, Aryan and Neil. Really looking forward to seeing how that game plays out as it's a good system with a huge background. However, my last game could have been Warhammer, Pendragon, MechWarrior, uh, D&D 5e, Call of Cthulhu, Barbarians of Lemuria, Spectaculars, or Castle and Crusades, depending on the day of the week and the position in the month that I write this. As I said, my gaming life is pretty full. Well, that's my first last and everything. Uh, I wanted to thank Dirk for asking me to record this, as getting to know the Grogfather and the Grognard community has enhanced my gaming life immeasurably, for which I will always be thankful. Thank you, and see you at the table. Shall we have another? Thunderface! Yes. Apart from the setting, is there anything else that inspires you when writing a scenario? That's from Mike, the film fan. Difficult. Yeah, I don't know. It depends, doesn't it? Because I, I, uh, settings are do add fuel to the idea, don't they? I'd, I'd kind of fuel for your ideas, a good setting. Where do you start from, though? So you pick up Vase. When you get that, when you, where do you start? Well, I suppose what I started with that was with the monsters because it's all about the monsters, isn't it? It's all about you are investigating these supernatural beings that are causing problems one way or another. And and in that game, the setting, although the, the setting's Victorian, Scandinavia, the, the monsters are all described in quite a bit of detail and have lots of scenario hooks built into them. What I look for in a setting, I suppose, is relationships between the people who live in the setting. That's often the way I start with a scenario, whether it's relationships between monsters, relationships between people and monsters, between different cities, different countries. Those kind of things are often what spark ideas for me. So it's it's not so much the setting. It's not the setting as such, but it's that aspect of the setting. So, for example, I've, I've um, recently rebought Traveller. Never, never thought I would. But one of the great things about the new Traveller is you get, lots and lots of more aliens and creatures 
and stuff about the planets in it than you ever did in the original. And it starts to spark ideas because you read about an alien race and what it likes and doesn't like and that kind of thing and what kind of problems it's got. And that you think, oh, right, okay, there's, there's an idea there. So I suppose what I look for within a setting is that thing of relationships between different organisations, different monsters, different people, different factions. Those are the things that, for me, spark ideas. That's a big revelation, the fact that you after some persuasion from me, have got back into traveller. We should uh, we should savour that. I shouldn't have wasted it, should I? On this? <laughs> that is what's interesting about, in relation to this question, because traveller did have a setting, but once you bring in more alien races and there's some descriptions of different animals and things and stuff, and you know, you know all these kind of things all existing in the universe, how do they kind of bounce off each other? What are their agendas? what will they like and not like, that kind of thing, is really what I find gives gives me ideas. I do think that you're a little different than me in that you do start in the game. You go you go into the game to try and find mm. what to do with it, whereas I'm a bit more external, if uh, that's the right way of doing it. Yeah, I think, I think what you do is you have an idea and then find a game for it, don't you? Yes. That's, that's exactly. what you do. Yeah, um, no, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I look at a game and I like the look of it and then I buy the game and I look in the game for clues. I kind of look, hunt down the scenario hooks within the game, within the setting, whereas you're, you're the opposite. You have an idea. You'll say to me, oh, I have an idea Blythe, for this. And you know what? I think it'll work really well with this game. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. So, that. so over the weekend, I sit, watched a film called On the Job. And it sounds like a uh, <laughs> Robin Asquith film from the 70s. It's on Netflix. I urge you to watch it. It's a great film. It's set in Manila where these guys are extracted from prison to do assassinations and then put back into prison. So they're basically untraceable. And when I watch a film like that, I'm instantly inspired to think, right, what's the role-playing opportunities here? And if you think about it, it's a perfect setup. It's a perfect setup because what you've got is player characters in a prison environment. So you've got all the factions that are going on with that. It's mission-based, so they have to leave the uh, prison and then go out into the outside world, complete the task that they're given, the assassination or whatever. They can have relationships, a family life outside of the prison, and they might have a backstory to, you know, where they are. Actually, I'm abroad at the moment. <laughs> I'm working. And then they've got to get their way back into prison. And they've got to do it, even though it's sanctioned by the officials, the rest of the prisoners don't realise that you're doing it. So you've got to, instead of the traditional prison breakout, for uh, scenarios, it's actually a break in. You know, you got to get your way, find your way back into the prison. So, what a great setup for a role playing series of one shots where, you know, you're given a mission, you have to leave the prison, go out, complete it, and find your way back in. And I just like that idea of doing a series of uh, things. But you could do that in a fantasy environment, you could do it in a, a modern day setting. And I think that's where I start. That's where I get my inspiration when I see something and think, mm, and that other idea will then percolate for a while. 
So you don't you don't really look for anything in a setting. You just look for a setting that's going to suit what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. Really. In a lot of but cases, whereas, yeah, yeah. Yeah, whereas was what I look for. I think I, I you're right. I do look into the setting, but what I look for is that thing of relationships, connections between all the people who live in this world. That was a good question. Thanks, uh, film fan Mike. Let's do another one. Okay. Thunder phase. Thunder phase. Yeah. This one's from Chris and Joe at Bonamy Games. What is the most surprising change of heart you've had since starting the podcast? It gives some examples. E.g., do you now love clerics? No. Do you prefer talking to Moorcock now? No. There you go. I answered those two, but um, you can dismiss those out of hand. But are there any are there any other changes of heart you've had since starting this podcast? Well, I think we've already had the big reveal of your change. Well, the big heart. reveal I got, yeah, I bought Traveller, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a change of heart, isn't it? What what went, what went on there? Because like, like I don't it, know. When you go back, when you go back, that's, don't yeah. ask me to explain myself. I think it was uh, episode three of this uh, podcast. If listen, yeah, if no. you go back that far, your inherent hatred. Uh, I, I think part. I think part of it was. I'd put Traveller behind me because I'd had bad experiences with it. And I still maintain that back in the day, it was a bit crap because it didn't have a lot of background and it was a bit sketchy and it was not very well illustrated and all those kind of things. But I suppose, again, it's like a lot of these things on Twitter. You get that thing that Pirates of Drenax, people going on about that. And you start thinking, hey, this sounds good, actually. This sounds really good. It sounds really quite exciting stuff, you know. And then, of course, you your fatal mistake is you buy buy the PDF rules because you think, oh, it's not that much, is it? It's not that much for the PDF. And then that's it, isn't it? It's bitten you then. And I just think it's it's just a much better game. And it would be interesting to go back to it now that it's got more. I mean, we just we just answered the question, don't we, about too much detail, too much setting detail, you know. Uh, but it, it's got more detail, you know, different alien races and stuff in it that you just just kind of think, all right, this is quite good. I suppose as well, I bought I bought Alien RPG, didn't I? And Alien RPG is very, very good. I was thinking I should run some more sci-fi. And one of the problems with sci-fi games is they're often very specific, aren't they, about what they're about. Uh, so Alien is fine, but I'm, I'm not sure you could run it unless you'd buy it in Aliens. You know, I think it's about Aliens, isn't it, really? That's, that's what everyone was expecting. Whereas Traveller, I suppose... If you have to go for a catch-all sci-fi game, there it is, isn't it? You know, do what you want with it. I feel like I'm floundering now trying to explain my purchases, but we'll see, won't we? I'll run it. I'll run some one-shot traveller. We'll see if it's any good. And as for a change of heart, I've been entirely consistent throughout the six years that we've been running this Adillo. Right then, Doll, shall we go and do another one? <laughs> Thunder phase. Okay. Okay, this is from Menian, right? Rob from We Timorous uh, Bushy podcast. Okay, dice, sharp sides or rounded edges? Oh, rounded edges every time. Why? Well, because in my head, and, you know, I, I concede that what's going on in my head isn't doesn't have much to do with the reality, but in my head, they roll better, don't they? So if, if you get a bad roll, you know, you get like a roll of one or a 20, or the, the roll you don't want, whatever you don't want, you roll it. I always think the, the flat edges, the sharp edges, it'll just like won't really roll quite as well as a rounded edge one. 
ergonomic is that the word i don't know if that it is a word i don't know if it's the right word but um it, it, it's that feeling of i find the sharp sides if somehow they'll just plop over they won't, they won't roll they won't roll you need a bit of rounding on them to roll that's my in my head i like the sharp edges because i think it's a more definitive result when it lands on it the receiving <laughs> flap and we know that it's not going to change. I just like the fact they roll better. <laughs> I just feel somehow they get you out of sticky spot if you're rolling bad. Get the old round side. It's more random. It's more random. That's, I'm but thinking it is more random. Thunderface. Ralph Lovegrove asks, Peter Gabriel or Phil Collins? Oh, this is fighting talk, this, isn't it? He wouldn't it's let it lie, would he? Terrible, terrible question, isn't it? That is, honestly. Poor, poor Phil. Hey, this is fighting talk. This is the it's not, it's not his fault he was so popular, is it? Well, I think if we go back in the day at your house, we used to listen to Phil Collins. Yeah. Yeah. You had no drag- jacket required, that bit bean face. Well it, it yeah, it came it came on the back of Genesis, didn't it? It seemed like a legitimate move to go from Genesis to Phil Collins, even though in actual fact it's quite different style of music. And uh, when it when it came to uh, my house I would play uh, Peter Gabriel. I had the uh, first Peter Gabriel albums with, with no name. They had no name at then. Mm. Um, I used to love the, the humdrum. And so that was the differentiation. And it is the thing, it's schism between us that has existed since we've met each other 40 odd years mm. ago. And I think under the terms of the last treaty, we're not allowed to discuss it. So, uh, Ralph, under the terms of that treaty? <laughs> the terms of, yes, that's true, actually. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think you're right. Looking at the small print here, yeah, it's not allowed to be discussed. And uh, <laughs> it's same applies to Danny and Kylie. And so Kylie, yeah. Don't bother asking those either. No. Next, Thunder Phase. Okay, and so we've got one from um, Bill Gosline uh, over in Seattle. And I heard the guys on the Smart Party cobble together the perfect Frankenstein RPG system recently. What would be yours taking different elements from all the games you love? So actually, we, we, we've mentioned, haven't we? we? You've appeared on the Frankenstein's podcast, haven't you? Frankenstein. I have, yeah. As have you. Yeah, we've both appeared on that. Yeah. So uh, we, we've had a hand in constructing um, it from that podcast, and we recommend it. Well, I, well, I've well, I've not because they didn't pick any of mine. Did they not? Uh, whereas no. initiative, I managed. To yeah, right. yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, one, it was, one, uh, it was rigged, rigged anyway. <laughs> one, nil. yeah. So, yeah, the Frankenstein's <laughs> RPG podcast. Uh, so it's recommended a panel show. You'll hear some familiar voices, and it that, that's all set about constructing the perfect. RPG and people argue the point. It's like a, I say, it's like a good old fashioned RPG panel show. It's highly recommended. Did you have fun when you went on? I did. I did have fun. It was a good, it was a good laugh. I enjoyed it. It's a good, it's a good format, isn't it? Even though people didn't didn't pick mine, but it serves me right, really, because I tried to deliberately force it to a to where I could vote for my own. <laughs> Vote to go to a tie where you can vote for your own, but it backfired on me a little bit. So it serves me right. Having right. said that, having bought Traveller now, I have to say I think I think the perfect RPG is probably Traveller. So the answer to the question <laughs> is uh, go and listen to Frankenstein's RPG podcast because we're not going to steal somebody else's format. 
No. Lightning no. round. Is it thunder phase? <laughs> thunder phase. Get it right. Okay, this is a question from Stuart McQueen. Who would win in a fight, a Rottweiler or a Rottweiler's weight in Chihuahuas? Oh, this is a good one, this, isn't it? Toughest question of the uh, of the evening, I think. <laughs> the first, let's, I, I don't like doing this, where you kind of challenge the presumption of the question. Why are they fighting? What are they, what, what are they arguing about? <laughs> What's the what's the nature of the fight? Well, let's let's assume that yeah. it's an all eight fight. And would and would the Chihuahuas all gang up like that? Are they that organised? <laughs> I mean, whenever I've seen a Chihuahua, they're just like a yappy little bold chaos, aren't they? I mean, they're not they're not going to gang up on like a pincer movement on a Rottweiler, are they? You know, like. But I suppose it's it is hypothetical. So let's take it in the spirit <laughs> of the question. Mm. So I suppose it's a question of whether. A single opponent is more effective than multiple opponents, isn't it? Well, yes, yeah, the spirit of it, yeah. I, I think multiple opponents are, in reality, more more deadly, aren't they? I think that um, this is one of the uh, bugbears, isn't it, of role-playing games where you get ganging up. To what extent is ganging up on somebody a problem? And I once I, I once saw something where these documentaries, and it was a it was a doorman or some some guy who was like a, a martial arts expert and we're not martial i know it was a surprise but we're not martial arts experts but he said something like even if you're a, a martial arts expert once two people are on you you're in trouble even just two people is enough to really pose a problem because you can't really fight two people at once it's really difficult more difficult than you imagine. And I suppose in role-playing games, you usually get the, oh, minus 20% on your parry or or they get a plus one or something like that because they're ganging up. But I, I think in reality, it, it's more prob- more of a problem than it perhaps seems, ganging up on someone. Well, if the, if the chihuahuas are smaller, mm-hmm. are they going to have an effective attack? I mean, that's a question. It only could be, presents a problem if your multiple opponents can cause you damage. Well, how heavy is a chihuahua? I mean, what he see? What we got to against weight? Weight of a chihuahua? You're not looking this up, are you? Yeah, must be on it, mustn't it? I can't spell chihuahua. Now. See, I when you look at the evidence, so uh, look at robot, robot wars, yeah, robot wars. Oh, yeah. Cl- cluster bots never did anything, did they? You know, it was always the single opponent of hypnodisc. When they says here, yeah. On. Well, that's you using evidence, but here we are. <laughs> 1.5 to 3 kilograms. So if we said if we said 2.5 kilograms, okay, weight of a Rottweiler, weight of a Rottweiler. Because you don't know how many that would be. It's easy for him to say, oh, the weight. You're assuming the weight, there's like a, an army of them, or three. You, you don't know, do you? Weight of a Rottweiler. Oh, I've got a Rottweiler. Ooh, right, a male Rottweiler, 50 to 60 kilograms. That's a lot of chihuahuas. So if you're pop, taking, you're yeah, a lot I mean, of chihuahuas for your Rottweiler. There. Taking fifty, you could at 20, 20, 20 chihuahuas. That, that's a lot. That's a lot. The Rottweiler's screwed. There's no there way you're getting out of that one. Twenty. That's twenty. Twenty. If they're yeah. a bit, you know, that's an average. Yeah, twenty, maybe nineteen, maybe twenty-one. 
Yeah. If it, if it, if it kills half of them, it's still got another 10 to go at. I think, yeah. I think the Chihuahuas win. Yeah. The Chihuahuas but, I, win. I, but, I do, but I do question how organised. I'll go back to that. I'm not sure they're organised enough. And if, if it's got a hypnodisc on its head, it's got no chance. <laughs> I think the Chihuahuas have no chance. Yeah, the Rottweiler barks. <laughs> 19 Chihuahuas might run away, leaving one mug there to tackle it and uh, you know <laughs> thanks Blythe that's great cheers goodbye this is Bud from Bud's RPG Review a YouTube channel where I review role playing games card games and board games although if I'm honest far less of the last two I do in-depth video reviews of gaming products all shot from the perspective of just my hands and whatever it is I am talking about I cover mainstream things like D&D, Call of Cthulhu and Warhammer, as well as out-of-print and hard-to-get-hold-of material, and I take pride in always being thorough and fair. Additionally, I have a smaller sister channel, Budzine Review, where I take a more loose look at shorter material like zines, fanzines and mini-scenarios, with the aim being to do it in under 10 minutes, something I've managed to stick to so far. So if you have the time and the hankering for a fair review in my dulcet scouse tones, then I hope to see you there sometime soon. Bud out. I'm still taken aback at the whole Fergie toe-sucking thing. People should note that I'm referring to the Duchess of York rather than the former manager of Manchester United or a black-eyed pea. The minor controversy caused by the incident was emblematic of our very odd country. At once deferent while irreverent, repressed while being obsessed. Odd. It's not the toes you should be looking at, it's the hands. It's worth checking out Bud's RPG reviews and his analysis of Marcus L. Rowland's Call of Cthulhu supplement, The Trail of the Loathsome Slime. I'll put a link in the notes. Thanks to Marcus. It was a real honour for me to finally meet up and chat with him. And I'm pleased to have Sam Vale on the podcast too. We've played together many times since meeting each other via the podcast. He was the very first Patreon supporter and has always been very encouraging. Thanks, Sam. We do have a Patreon campaign and at the end of this year, we'll be distributing our next grogzine as a reward for them for their support. All the ingredients for the grogzine are nearly together so I can crack on with my favourite part, laying it out and commissioning more artwork. Thanks to everyone old and new who have supported the podcast along the way, either by subscribing, reviewing, retweeting, telling a pal or tipping the Patreon beret. We really do appreciate it. There's going to be a extra pod shortly after this one, which includes an extended chat with Marcus about his Forgotten Futures RPG. At the end of that one, I'll give some individuals a shout out as there'll be more space. Maybe I'll dip into Diana Warrior Princess in search of virtual gifts. We also have our 50th episode coming soon and we'll need to do something special for that. In the meantime, I'm looking out for two dice, a pencil and an eraser. Test for luck. Until then, adios amigos. (laughs) 